Ah, Cosmos fans will recognize that theme for sure. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and joining me today on The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast, is Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of National Geographic's Cosmos, Possible Worlds. Neil, how are you? Welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I like the way you say National Geographic's Cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give it that gravitas that it deserves, and you as well, by the way. So tell me, how are you doing? What's your life been like the last few months? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I'm uh, isolated. I'm in a safe house in an undisclosed location. <laughs> <laughs> we will protect your anonymity. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm just observing the unfolding of these events. It's basically um, an invader of our species, right? I mean, is it right. really any different from an alien threatening us all, where we mm. all have to sort of get our act together, cooperate, do things that are in the interest of our own survival and our own collective goodwill. So for me, it's kind of like a, a shot across our bow mm. for what would be necessary if hostile aliens decided to to um, hold Earthlings hostage. So, so, this, is, so this is a dress rehearsal for that? <laughs> it's a dress rehearsal for that. Uh, not only that, I think I, I tweeted recently, which ended up being like one of my top five ever tweets. Oh, wow. That was not the intent. It was just simply... You know, every disaster movie begins with people ignoring a scientist. Mm. <laughs> so, oh, how sad and true that is. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, so I think the 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 gravity—no uh, pun intended here—but the gravity of the situation is what's been miscommunicated, misunderstood, ignored. Well, that is and actually so, my next question, and and on that front, and and all joking aside, as we you know we all try to make light of this beyond the graveness of the loss of life and economic collapse that everyone around the world is experiencing, what has most alarmed you about that dissemination of information? I think it's, um, it's, it's all too easy to blame people's irrational responses to a rational threat. Right. It's, it's, it, that's too easy. Um, you know, there are people who lost their jobs and they're protesting. They want to go back to work. And... To, to sit in your in your comfortable home on you know living off your savings or off your higher salary which uh, kept can keep you going to say oh you people don't know what you're doing you're gonna make it worse it's uh, right what what a luxury to even be in a position to speak that way to someone who simply wants to regain their livelihood which has been shut down by by laws and legislation. Mm. So so I think there's lessons up and down the educational chain as well as the political chain for how we need to collectively think about, respond to, and uh, resolve uh, a collective challenge that, that we have confronted. So uh, by the way, a virus is not a new thing, right? It's right. a new virus, but viruses aren't new. No. Uh, we've had pandemics before have people forgotten you know pull out some some news articles from 1918 and then you read about the there was an anti-mask brigade or i forgot what they called themselves mm -hmm. people who refused to wear masks and they thought their you know their liberties were being trammeled upon and it's like the same the same thing all over again and what do you think goes into that mindset yeah, I think it's easy to not believe the severity, the severity of something you can't see. Mm. Uh, consider uh, climate change being driven by 
uh, carbon dioxide and methane. You can't see carbon dioxide. You can't smell it. Right. All right. But it's there. So imagine CO2 were purple. Hmm. All right. And then you'd like walk up and down the street and you'd see it sort of belching out of the, the, the tailpipes of cars and out of the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants. And you'd say to yourself, wow, I want to do something about that. And right. then you could watch as you begin to do things about it, the purple begins to diminish right. until it goes away. And then you, can, you have a sense that you have accomplished something. In this case, a virus is, is invisible to you. You need to analogize the virus to something else that you might be spreading. Another good example, if you don't have this, this magic uh, substance that they used in this experiment, just get uh, party glitter. Mm. You know, the <laughs> kind that people might put on their eyebrows or, sure. or you know. Or put in uh, envelopes. In envelopes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that so get, get all get, over your house. <laughs> <laughs> just get glitter and then make your hands even just slightly moist. Let's so just like breathe in on them, you know, right. with your cu- cup of your hands. Just make them slightly moist and then dunk your hands in the glitter. And then mm. just go around shaking other people's hands <laughs> and just watch how like the fifth person whose hand gets shook by the person whose hand you shook has the glitter wow. that you put on that first person's hand. And that's just a microcosm of what is going on in that microscopic environment of viruses. So I think we need to be better at our capacity to educate those who would otherwise resist it. One of the silver linings that I think so many people have been looking for in this disaster, in this pandemic, one of them might be that we've actually introduced within our habits certain um, uh, uh, modes of, 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 uh, of cleanliness, all right? Mm-hmm. So uh, for example, before just a few months ago, if someone came to work a little sneezy, you'd say, oh, wow, they're, they're, they're coming to work even though they're sick. Good for them. <laughs> it was like right? a badge of courage. <laughs> a badge of courage. Now, oh my gosh, you're going to get a talking to by everybody. Now it's a scarlet letter. There'll be an eject button built into your office chair. Right. So those folks will no longer gain access to the office place. And plus, mm-hmm. we're trained to work at home if you can. Many jobs... Uh, it, it, we're figuring out how to still be productive, working at home. You can, of course, manufacturing jobs don't lend themselves to this, but but sort of office jobs certainly do in many cases. And so, and documents move by email, and not like the old days, because that's how old I am, <laughs> phys- physically printing a document. <laughs> You know, we like to, you know, laugh in these difficult times, but science has been under assault for some time now. I'm sure you've had more fascinating conversations on this subject than you ever imagined you would in the last few years. Do you think that politics, science, and religion can ever possibly coexist peacefully? Well, they have historically. You go back to the 1960s, science was a path to the future. With whatever other challenges we had as a country, with the civil rights movement and the campus unrest and the anti-war movements, nobody was questioning the value of science. Right, right. So that's a recent phenomenon. Hmm. And, and, and I'm, I'm disappointed in us as a culture that people would think that science is just something they can either ignore discount or dismiss simply because it conflicts with their political philosophy or their religious philosophy. Right. Those are the seeds of the unravel- unraveling of civilization that we've worked so hard to build. It was interesting watching 
the 13th episode of the season, which centered a lot on space travel, as we the 13th will also and final discuss. episode. Yes, yes. 13th and mm-hmm. final. And it's interesting to think about the people today who are, I would call them science deniers in whatever form they are, there still seems to be support for space ex- exploration, which I think we would all agree is a scientific endeavor. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's interesting. How do you see that as sort of being one way we can bridge these different groups? Where it's sort of, okay, I, I, you don't believe in washing your hands, but you do support the space program. <laughs> to me, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum. By the way, there, there are space naysayers. Right. <laughs> yes. They'll, they'll say things like, "Why are we sending money in space? We got to do it down on Earth." Uh, right. Oh, by the way, let me check the Weather Channel to see the satellite photos of the hurricane, so I don't know <laughs> if it's going to hit my town. Right. These are the same people. <laughs> the same people who would say, "I don't like science and technology." Oh, wait, Grandma's calling on my smartphone. Hang on a sec. You know, people are complex organisms. In our that's a behavior. very nice way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in our behavior and our philosophies and our conduct. So I don't think we can presume or expect every person, every person to unfold completely rationally in this world. In fact, some of the greatest creative acts of what it is to be human issue forth from places within those creative people that have nothing to do with rational thought. Mm. You know, look at Picasso drawing someone with two eyeballs on one side of their head. That's just kind of weird. But it opened up a whole path of exploration in art. So I'm not here to say that everyone should be a scientist or should be rational. It should be any of the above. But when we do see that people embrace aspects of science and technology, some aspects and not others, yes, that is a way in. The good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. (laughs) Maybe science needs a PR firm. (laughs) So switching gears, I would love to talk about a theme that's prominent in this most recent season of Cosmos, which is something we've briefly touched upon, making contact with other worlds. So I'd love to listen to a short clip from Episode 7, The Search for Intelligent Life on Earth. We search the heavens for signs of intelligent life. But what would we do if we found it? Are we ready for first contact? Would we be smart enough to even know if someone was sending us a message? We've only been able to detect radio signals for a little over a century. Extraterrestrial civilizations could have been bombarding Earth with radio signals for millions and billions of years before them. And nobody here would have had any inkling that it had ever happened. What if we seem just like ants to them? We all know how we treat ants. What if the extraterrestrials are smarter than we are, have technology, weapons that render us helpless? The history of first contact among terrestrial civilizations, the humans of East and West, North and South, has been scarred by genocide. How confident are you amidst all the challenges of our living on this Earth, this planet, that we will someday inhabit and communicate with other worlds? I, I see nothing stopping us from inhabiting other worlds. And world I, is, is a word that has gained currency in the last few decades. You know, we can look at a planet or a moon or, you know, it kind of puts distance between you and it. Right. But if you call it a world, then it's like, hey, hmm. maybe if I can't live there, just by walking off the spacecraft, maybe I can bring 
you know, bring food and supplies, and or maybe I can terraform. One of my favorite words mm, of the last few one. decades. Yeah, to turn that destination world into one where I can live and breathe, and and uh, so uh, I think that is realistic as a minimum for as tourist destinations mm-hmm. to the, the the moon, Mars, and beyond, for sure, even in my lifetime. Now, you want to talk about communicating with extraterrestrial intelligence. I tend to be on the skeptical side only because uh, who says that we're intelligent? <laughs> who who, who defines? Well, we right. did. Right. We define that. Right. Okay? Take that fact and say, hmm. We have other life forms on Earth that uh, are close to us genetically. Uh, if we're really smart, we ought to be able to figure out how to talk to them. So let's find chimpanzees. Do we really, you know, uh, Jane Goodall aside, do we really? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if she's reading Charles Dickens to them or, I, you know, who knows how far she's actually been able to communicate with them. But for the rest of us, how much have we communicated with other species of life on Earth that have near identical DNA to us? Mm. I think the answer is not very much. Except doc- Dr. Doolittle. He's really the only <laughs> one I can think of, too. But yes. Oh, no, no. Right. Uh, wait. And, <laughs> and the doctor can speak to um, the Time Lord, uh, doctor of Doctor Who. Oh, yes, exactly. You can also speak to animals. Get you, keep all your doctors lined <laughs> That's up. That's right. That, you might need them one day for this. Exactly. So... Let's find some other species. Let's say they choose to visit Earth. Well, that means they're way more advanced than we are in every way. They've got spaceships. They've got, they figured stuff out that we haven't. Who are we to believe that they will be able to communicate with us? Right. We could be just so stupid (laughs) compared (laughs) with them that... Our most complex thoughts sit below their simplest thoughts. Right. That's what it is between you and your dog, all right? And it's definitely true between you and a worm, whatever else. (laughs) Right. So for us to say, let's go out and have conversations with smart aliens, I don't, you know, it kind of have to be exactly our intelligence. Right. If it's beyond us, we're not interested. And in fact, the best evidence... That the universe has intelligent life in the universe is that they've chosen to never visit us. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, it'd be a tricky time. That would be a tricky yeah. time. Well, and yeah. let's let's try to get people to wash their hands first. Then we'll go about this uh, setting up these communications with with other life forms. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, listen to another clip, and this is from the finale, and we've briefly touched on it. Seven Wonders of the New World, and the 1964 World's Fair figures prominently in this episode. So let's mm-hmm. give this a listen. Our universe began some 14 billion years ago when matter, energy, time, and space burst forth. And the darkness was cold, and the light was hot. And the union of these extremes gave shape to matter, and there was structure. They were great stars, hundreds of times the mass of our sun. And these stars exploded 
sending oxygen and carbon to the worlds to come, and adorning them with gold and silver. And in their deaths, the stars became darkness, and the weight of their darkness vanquished the light. So in this episode, I have to say I loved the reenactment of your family. And there's this adorable little boy playing you. <laughs> and where did you find this adorable child who, I have to say, shares your sense of wonder? He is just the cutest kid. How did you find him? So apparently, there's this place called Central Casting. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of that. Yeah, I, I've heard of this. But the five of us, my parents, my brother and sister, mm-hmm. I was, you know, six or something, went to, the, to that, that's how old I am, uh, went to that World's Fair. And there's a photo of all of us, my sister in a in a in a stroller and everyone's just kind of looking at the photo with kind of a obligatory expression and i'm just beaming (laughs) (laughs) it's like what's wrong with the restaurant this is the world's fair so that world's fair was uh, had indelibly etched in my sense of what kind of future i wanted to inhabit And I also knew that this is not a future that's going to be handed to me. I would need to participate in making it happen. Those reflective scenes ended up in episode 13 because Anne Druyan, Mm -hmm. who is the, you know, she's... Mastermind. Creator. (laughs) Yeah, she's she's, she's the... You part the curtains and there she is, okay? (laughs) In in everything. Um, She could not resist figuring out something to do with the fact that I attended the 1964 World's Fair in New York mm-hmm. in Flushing Meadow, Queens. Uh, that's the, the fairgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yes. As did Carl Sagan. Yes, of course. Her, she is the widow of Carl Sagan. Mm-hmm. He att- No, excuse me. He didn't attend the 1964 World's Fair. He attended the 1939 World's Fair right. in Flushing Meadows, New York. Wow. And so, and he was touched and moved by the future visions offered in that World's Fair. So that became a thing. It became a a running theme. And in fact, in that episode, we portray a World's Fair of 2039, which is a little harder than you might think because- (laughs) Yes, I have a lot of questions about that because it looked very real. (laughs) (laughs) It was real. (laughs) I knew you were a time traveler. Yeah, so the, the point of that is you have to imagine the year 2039, all right? So that's the future. Then you have to imagine how those people would imagine their future. Right. Right? So it's a double-nested future imagination going on. And so I I was totally digging the exhibits where you just choose a time and a place and meet historical characters. That's very cool. Yeah. And all the people who wanted to go visit the Big Bang, which is kind of dangerous, really, when you think <laughs> was, about it. I was thinking you know, that, too. <laughs> you don't want to singe your eyebrows, you know, coming out of And what is the safe distance to be away from the Big Bang? I don't know if we know yeah, that. I have to, I have to, I'll calculate that. I'll get back, I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, what it was very charming to see the sort of reenactment of your family, but also just this idea of this little boy of color from the Bronx experiencing this. And today, it would almost still feel rare. I lived in New York. I used to see kids in my neighborhood going to school, and I would talk to kids, and, and I don't know if a lot of them have access to this type of information, on, even today. And I'm wondering, what did it mean to you to have that exposure, and how much do you think it informed this lifelong passion? Oh, entirely. Yeah, the World's Fair is just one out of many trips. 
my parents made it a priority. Uh, I didn't realize they had ulterior motives for this, <laughs> which was to keep the kids busy so that when they got home, they just fall asleep. Right. <laughs> but, but Very almost smart. Every, almost every weekend, we would all go on a trip somewhere. Um, it could be to a natural setting, a park, or the aquarium, mm. or uh, an art, art museum, or even a sporting event, or the Natural History Museum, which Outback had something called the Hayden Planetarium. Yes, I've heard of it. Where, <laughs> you've heard of it, where, where I now yeah. serve as director. Right. And so each of these excursions served as a point of exposure to inform our ambitions. Mm. We just thought they were just fun outings. But in fact, it was very carefully planned this way. You know, I host a, the show Star Talk, mm -hmm. and one of those episodes is me interviewing my mother. We posted it uh, for Mother's Day. Aww. And in there, you, uh, she's 90, but you get to hear her talk about this, the way they constructed our young lives, mm -hmm. so, uh, the, the events surrounding our young lives, sure. so that as we got older, we had more options than just, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, uh, fireman, that sort of thing. There was more right. things that, that you could think about becoming, even if it meant being an artist, as my brother became, mm -hmm. or if we wanted, we saw professional athletes, we saw professional adults being really good at stuff. You've, you had amazing parents, I can tell. Mm -hmm. And this sort of speaks to something we talked about earlier, this idea that there is a window of exposure that people must have in order to appreciate and start to absorb their reality, where, whether it's the idea that science is all around them, this idea of ingenuity and possibility. Do you believe that, that there is that window and does it close at some point? Or can someone who's 30 or 40 years old still feel awoken by these types of possibilities? Too late. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it all comes down to one word, and that's curiosity. Mm. So as all kids are curious, you just look around. What are kids doing? They're turning over rocks. They're looking behind trees. They're they're poking. and do Sometimes what they do if they're young could put their health and lives at risk. So as right. a parent, you're protecting them from their own curiosity. I, I mm. think... We don't tend to think about it that way, hmm. but that's that's what you're doing. So if you thought about it more, you might you might be more creative about that line in the sand that you draw between the things that they experiment with and the things that they don't. Yeah, they might play with something in your home and it might break if they continue to play with it. You say, don't touch that or don't handle right. that or please sit down. And, and this continues and you say, well, wait a minute. You're, what you're doing is you're systematically squashing their curiosity. Mm. So if you don't want the, 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 the plate to break, put a plastic plate in the same place and let them <laughs> grab that. Okay. Right. Because they're going to grab it anyway, is your point. They're going to grab it anyway. Right. Let them grab it. Right. They're going to look at it. Why does it have this shape? Suppose they throw it. It could be a little like a kind of like a frisbee, right? right? You're, you're it's like a baby in a high chair just throwing its toy on the ground or throwing food on the ground over and over and over because that's what they feel like doing, <laughs> right? And what you what you prefer to do is have them do it and have them observe what happens. Mm. If they just throw it and don't watch, that's not being curious. That's just being annoying. <laughs> <laughs> that's why dinner time is a rough time for a lot of parents. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't you didn't have kids so that you'd have an easy time at dinner. That's just, very just true. put this in perspective. Yeah. Right. If if you don't, if you didn't want to do all this, just, you know, just there are ways to have prevented that. Okay. <laughs> but if you've got kids, you have committed yourself, like it or not, to their enlightenment. Hmm. And so you might as well embrace it. And 
as the saying goes, the days go by slowly, but the the years go by quickly. Yes. And that's taken on a whole new meaning for parents in the last couple months. Yes, it has. (laughs) (laughs) So my point is a very long-winded way to say that if you nurture the curiosity, it's something you can retain into adulthood. Mm. The saddest thing is to see an adult who has lost their curiosity. I know everything I need to know. I'm good. I'm good here. And that's just sad because there's so much sad. I don't mean in a uh, uh, sad is too strong. I, I, let me just say, as an educator, I think a person who feels that way, the flames of curiosity have dimmed. And th- maybe they're just an ember, or maybe they've gone out entirely. And I think programs like Cosmos, and a lot of programs that air on National Geographic, are intended to spark again that sense of adventure, that mm. sense of curiosity, and you know, become a kid again. Can you tell me about the first time you met Carl Sagan? So I was in high school, and I'd already established an interest in the universe from very early on, from age nine, actually. And one of the colleges I applied to was Cornell, where he was a professor. And I got accepted at Cornell, but I didn't know yet if I would attend. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, in the mail, in this snail mail, which is the only kind of mail that existed back then, was a letter from Carl Sagan. Oh, a personal letter to me saying, mm. uh, hello, Neil, I hear that you're considering colleges. And I noticed that you like the universe. I'm paraphrasing here, of course. but And it's <laughs> um, and I, if, if you come visit the campus, I'll show you around. I'll show you the lab to help you decide. And it was like, well, is, it, is this car? Is it, this can't be. No, no, no. And, but sure enough, it was. And I called him back and we set up a meeting. Uh, I visited uh, Ithaca, New York in December, which meant it was really cold. And it was old. it's almost always just about to snow. In right. Ithaca. But I got up there anyway. He did show me the, I'm a senior in high school at this point. And he showed me the lab. We talked about astronomy. He reached behind him, pulled a book from the shelf. He didn't even look. And it was one of his books. I thought that was really badass. If you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a no look pull of a, one of your own books that you've written. That's amazing. And he signed it to me. I still have that book. He says to Neil, future astronomer, Carl, I still have that book. And it's a, um, Oh, uh, then uh, the day is running long and it's time for me to go. And he drives me back to the bus station and it looks like it's starting to snow. And then he wrote down his home phone and said, if if it snows bad and the bus doesn't come through, call me. You can spend the night with my family. Mm. And then I thought, okay, so this is a famous person. And all I could think of in that moment was, if I am ever remotely this famous, I know how I need to treat students coming up. Mm. I'm going to treat them the way Carl Sagan has treated me. And to this day, no matter who I'm on the phone with, right? If a student shows up for an appointment or whatever, I'll say, Barack, I got to call you back. I got a student (laughs) outside the door. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And to complete full circle, because I just have to do this. Now I can reach back and pull one of my own books <laughs> from my desk and do the same thing and sign it to who comes to visit my office. That was my first encounter. And he, he was a mentor, not in the sense that we worked together, which is the traditional interpretation of that word, yeah. but he was a mentor by example. 
and you know, never underestimate the value of paying close attention to the behavior of others that you want to emulate. Uh, you don't even have to know them. You just have to see how they operate and what they do in those situations. And I saw his facility with analogy and his patience with people, some obstinate in their views, and he had such patience and such caring. It was a, it was a fireside manner. Then when Cosmos showed up, by the way, by then I'm in graduate school, it was just clear that, yeah, that he should be doing this because now millions of people will feel as though he's sitting in their living room with them just talking about the universe. And what has it meant to you to continue Carl's legacy as the face of Cosmos? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't actually think about it that way. I think of Cosmos as something bigger than us all. Yes, uh, Carl started it and co-written with Anne Julian. Anne was in all three Cosmoses. That's, I think that's actually a word. Cosmoses? We'll make, we'll make it one. Uh, and the first two had a, a friend and colleague of mine, Steve Soder, as a co-author. This, this most recent one is Andrian and Brown and Braga, uh, who also co-directed many of the episodes. Um, they, I, I think of Cosmos as transcending everything. These are messages bigger than any one person. I'm carrying ideas and scientific insights and scientific wisdom. Uh, I'm bringing it forth. The, the wisdom is kind of there. And yes, it has to be assembled. It has to be written. It has to be written in a way that's going to matter to you. Yes. But I see myself as a vessel, hmm. to as a conduit to the cosmos for whoever will listen. And so, yes, that's a legacy that Carl Sagan forged. But... Um, I'd like to think 20 years from now, there will be 10 more cosmoses in the, in the books, in the, in the libraries, and there'll be, you know, eight others who have hosted it. And that the cosmos, it's, it's like James Bond, right? right. <laughs> when you, you say James Bond, there's like eight people that play James Bond, okay? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that means we have about six or seven more hosts to go. <laughs> <laughs> cosmos is a franchise whose one goal is to connect you not only to the universe, but to, to all the branches of science in a seamless way so that when you step out the front door, and even before you do, you look around and say, I have a new sense of empowerment because I know how that works and I know why it works. And now I can make decisions that will matter to the health, the wealth, and security of the future of civilization. That's the legacy of Cosmos. One thing I love about the show is that there's a sense of hope baked into it. And despite all the turmoil and everything we're living through right now, there's always this sense of possibility. And if our current times have taught us anything, is that we need to rethink a large portion of the way we live our lives. And that's different for each person, of course, based on their economic resources, where they live, the level of poverty in which they're existing. What is one thing that each of us can do on a daily basis to help perpetuate our own survival? Yeah, that's a very important question because at times it feels helpless, right? I'm just one person and there's right. six billion others. And what does it mean if I reduce my carbon footprint, but whole other countries 
aren't isn't right. that unfair is right. that well it's the, it's um, the mask conundrum it's the same thing why should i wear a mask if other people aren't it's the same idea yeah yeah so uh, my favorite analogy to that was having some some states open their businesses while others don't right is like designating a peeing section of the pool <laughs> Uh, but really, what's at the bottom of this? Let me back up just briefly. Um, Anne is the source of Andrean. Is the source of all the hope that is in that series. I have some hope. She has <laughs> ten times my hope. Okay, wow. so like you, you said it right. Hope is baked into the the episodes in every episode, culminating in the last episode that I think has the greatest arcs of hope ever put to video. Mm -hmm. By the way, is is my opinion there, but. If you need to change people's behavior, my understanding of that from psychology and the rest is it, you, it's hard to do it by just ordering people to change their behavior, especially in a free country. They have to be motivated in some kind of way. If you told them how much it actually costs to sustain a carbon footprint society, that changes the metrics of you saying, well, if I give up my coal or my gas, that means I'll lose money in this place. Well, let's look at the actual cost. Let's look at what's actually going on. The cost of that air pollution and the water pollution and the people who get sick, the people who die from right. respiratory illnesses. Has, have you factored all of that in? And when you do, what you will find is that the green future is not only cleaner, but it's healthier and more lucrative than the carbon future, once you weigh it all out. But no, nobody's doing that right now because the corporate interests are strong. So what you can imagine is a future where the corporations become green corporations, all right? And some will rise, some will fall, others will transform if they're wise and they have good foresight, and not only looking at the quarterly report, looking at the two-year, the five-year, the 10-year report, who does that, right? Um, but if, if you do, um, then you can still sustain a sort of a capitalist system in a world where we are not peeing in the pool that will be <laughs> where our, our descendants are going to swim in it, okay? I hate to... I like that analogy a lot. So there was an episode, if I'm recalling correctly, where you talked about the need for us to stop thinking in terms of balance sheet to balance sheet and corporate interests. That because the earth is so old and the universe is so old, we have to be thinking in larger increments of time. Yes. And, and just to use an analogy from the 19th century, uh, you know, we were slaughtering whales, you know, by the wanton slaughter of whales. Why? Oh, because we need the oil from the blubber for our lamps right, and right. for other sources of warmth. And, and, and there was some resistance to that at the time. So we finally stopped killing whales. Was it because this Save the Whales movement succeeded? No. It was because we discovered oil in the ground, which was cheaper to get to, and it, it, and it had a high energy content per gram, and it solved an economic problem. So I think if we're going to go forward, we need to be economically clever so that we can put economic solutions in front of people that will then change their behavior overnight. 
Right. And incentive, I think, is the word. And that's the, that, thank you. I, that's the word I was dancing around trying to find. You know, you're not going to go to Walmart and say, stop buying these products because they have a high carbon footprint when they're spending you know, $6 on something that you're otherwise spending $12 on so that it doesn't have a footprint. You can't do that with the population, with any part of the population that's going paycheck to paycheck unless the full economic returns on that can be manifested in the here and in the now. Well, sir, if there's anything else you'd like to add and tell us how we can get ourselves out of this mess, we are all ears. <sighs> I would leave you with some wisdom here. Uh, I don't know if I got any wisdom left. <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I imagine I'm you're pretty tapped, tapped out. out at this point. <laughs> I'm tapped out. Uh, learn what science is and how and why it works so that when the methods and tools of science established an objective truth, you will then recognize it for its value to you so that if you need to make a decision about your life and your health and your welfare, uh, your health, the wealth, and your security, it will be based on what is objectively true, not on what you wish were true. So that the debates in Congress about whether or not there's climate change or global warming really should be about how do we respond in the face of climate change and global? Are there carbon credits? Are there, do we have tariffs? Are there, those are political solutions to the scientific challenges that face us. And people have differences of opinions, and of course, we respect that. We love that. That is America. All right, America was founded on compromise, right? But the moment you're debating something that's scientifically, objectively demonstrated, uh, Move back into the cave now, okay? <laughs> to, to pack up, go back into the cave, because that's where you are headed. Well, I wish we had more time to dissect all the nuances of life with you even further. And actually, Neil, I do feel a slight sliver of hope that I didn't feel an hour ago, so thank you very much. A sliver? Okay, we got to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find more information about Cosmos and all of National Geographic's 2020 Emmy contenders at natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and thank you so much for joining us on The Making of a Nat Geo Podcast. The Making of a Nat Geo Podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive produced by Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert, hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt, written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi, and in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. <laughs>